Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle. My co-host, Rachel Santizo, could not be here today. My guest is Jason Miller. Uh, we'll get to him in a second. I want to remind you, uh, we're in a new studio, and so if you want to see what our studio looks like, most of you listen to the podcast on either iTunes, iHeart, KKAT Radio, 860 AM in Salt Lake, uh, but you can watch it on YouTube. And all you have to do is go to YouTube and Google Odyssey House Journals. Uh, let us know what you think about, uh, about our new studio that we've moved into. Uh, so thank you very much for watching. I hope you enjoyed the past two weeks where we talked about gender dysphoria. And today we're just going to talk, this is a podcast, uh, one of the most watched and listened to podcasts dealing with addiction and recovery. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jason Miller works at Odyssey House now. Uh, so it was easy to track him down. All I had to do was talk to his boss and say, make him be on this podcast. That's right. right. And she said, be on the podcast, Absolutely. and now you're on the podcast. So. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's an honor to be here. We really uh, came a long ways. Um, we've worked together for a little while, and, and um, it's great to, to see you guys doing all this stuff, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Well, I'm impressed because I can relate to you, and you can relate to me, because we are both recovering alcoholics. Indeed. Uh, you had a little rougher road than I did going through your uh, days of alcoholism, uh, maybe you could just like tell us about that because I was impressed the other day we were in a meeting and you talked about how hard you've had to work to get to where you are and 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 it really was a lot of hard work coming from a very bad place so yeah tell <coughs> so, me about it well I <clears throat> you know I come from a, 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 a very good family a middle-class family um, played sports in high school went to college on a soccer scholarship and and really didn't have you know a lot of some of the barriers that some of our clients have have, have faced um but when i became an adult um it really um some of my family history and and some of the genetic components and there was just a lot of things that that came into play that that really did um take it take its toll on me and really took took over took over who i was and took over you know who i wanted to be um I come from a history of um, Native American, so I have a history of alcoholism in my family on my father's side. Um, but ultimately, whenever I was in college, you know, I did a lot of what college students do. Uh, I partied. Um, I was a lot involved. of binge drinking. Yeah, a lot right? of binge drinking. Um, I was, you know, involved with you know some some student activities, but most of everything that I was doing after my second year that I was no longer playing soccer um, involved alcohol. And I was unaware of, of kind of what that would do, but ultimately I found out that I really like to drink and drive. And so um, <laughs> over, my, over my lifetime, I've been arrested for 11 DUIs. 11? 11. Um, that, and so that, they become felonies at that, that point, right? Yeah, so I'm from the state of Oklahoma, and that is obviously where the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, that organization was founded in that state. And it really um it really became a problem especially when you were getting duis in consecutive in short time so one would be a misdemeanor two would then be a felony if it was in within a, a one or two year period and and because of my alcoholism and it expanding for such a long time i actually did that three times so i'm actually a three-time convicted felon um ultimately though 
once um, the jurisdiction out there decided that they had enough of me drinking and driving and and I was just continuously um, on probation I was um, had an ankle monitor on my on my right leg there for about eight months um, and I just was not you know going along with the program they decided that they wanted to put me in prison and so in 2004 um, I spent 18 months in the Oklahoma Department of Corrections and um, the penitentiary system out there is really unique um, and it's unique because there's some some organ there's some prisons that are owned by the state and then there's some privately held prisons and um, I was uh, one of the unfortunate ones to go to a privately held prison and, and they're worse than the ones owned by the state yeah and the reason why that is is because they're um, they're paid by the state based on their population so most penal institutions have some sort of step-down program where you're able to receive good time and and you're able to transition into lower levels of care from maybe like a a medium security facility to a minimum and then you go to a halfway house and then a residential program Um, i started out in the medium security facility um, that was uh, 20 um, it was about 22 hours of of lockdown um, based off of um, riots and some other things that were going on it was locked down quite a bit um, but you know <clears throat> in looking at all of the history and 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 my alcoholism and my story um, that that is a piece of it but but really um, I don't remember a lot of it because of how how bad it was um, there's pieces of it that I recall there's things that I wish I didn't have a memory of um, it was a very dangerous place um, but Ultimately, when I got out of there, that was kind of the first round of of my addiction. Well, um, why you were in prison? Because obviously, it's not a pleasant place. No. Uh, I mean, did you do a lot of uh, thinking about, you know, when I get out, maybe I shouldn't drive drunk anymore. Of or, course. Or, or should I stop drinking? Or were you just thinking, I, I should keep drinking, but I shouldn't drive while I drink? You know, the, the funny thing about that is, is that whenever I first got into jail, I was in the Salt Lake or the Tulsa County Jail there for about 60 days. Those were all of my thoughts. I'll never do this again. I never want to be putting myself in this type of situation. Right. And I can, I can control and do anything I want to in order to avoid this from happening. Once I got actually to inside of the prison there in Lawton, Oklahoma, my thoughts every day was, how am I going to make it through this day? Um, there was a lot of violence. There's a lot of theft, a lot of crime. There's a lot of, you know, drug interactions that are going on in there. And I really just did not want to accumulate any more time while I was in there. And so, you know, the freedom that I had and, and, and the kind of the mindset that I had was more so in a survival mode for about nine months. Um, and that was interesting to me because I had always been kind of athletic and competitive, but this was a completely different type of environment and a completely type of different type of situation that I'd ever been in and and that was my focus and so um, I was able to transition down to a lower level um, later on in my sentence and then once I got out I actually moved to Kansas um, and was trying to do the I'm going to get out of the places, people, and things type mentality, right? I'm going to go up here. I'm going to do this. Which addicts and alcoholics think, if I just change yeah. if I change jobs or change where I live or change my friends, I'll be fine. Of course, right? yeah. And so, Did it work? It did not. Um, <laughs> what I found was is that I had not developed a skill set in order to deal with life on life's terms. Um, I was really struggling with trying to figure out who I was. 
Um, I, I had not completed college. Um, I actually ended up getting kicked out of school. Um, and I had to... For drinking? For drinking, yeah. At being involved, I worked in a bar there when I was in Tahlequah, when I was in college, and I was involved in fighting and, and just doing things that were really counterproductive to okay. what we would consider to be you know, good citizens today. But ultimately, um, when I got to Kansas, I realized that, that I was kind of by myself. I had some family up there, but I wasn't happy, and I really didn't know. And, and guess what started up, right? I just started drinking again. Sure. And so and driving <coughs> and driving, yeah. Oh, jeez. And you're and a slow learner. I, I'm very slow. Yeah. Very, very slow. And ultimately, there were there was about a 12 year period from 2004 until almost 2000 and well, actually, it's a little bit longer than that. 14 years that I did not have a driver's license. So you're driving drunk without a license. Yeah. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really was. What were you um, thinking? You know, I just did not really have much thought um, to the future. I didn't have much thought about my repercussions or, or consequences. I didn't have a lot of thinking about who I was impacting. I really just wanted to escape um, a reality that, that I really could not escape. Um, I was so consumed with, you know, getting my next drink for, for such a long time. That really became my behavior. Everything that I did on a daily basis was revolved around, you know, how am I going to get a drink? How am I going to hide this drink? And how am I going to do just good enough to be around people to make them think that I'm probably not an alcoholic or that I can maintain a job? And it was really, um, it was really a roller coaster ride. I ended up moving out to um, North Carolina. Um, I was there in 2005 up until 2009. And I was able to get a job. Um, I was able to, to work as a, as a contractor sales rep where I was working out in the field. And that was really beneficial to me because I was around construction workers who liked to drink alcohol. <laughs> right. And also, I was also around people that liked to be taken out to restaurants and, sure. and all of those things. So you got a great excuse <clears throat> to drink. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm not an alcoholic. It's part of my job. Right. And the, the ironic part of this, too, is that I had... Uh, a copy of a driver's license from the state of Oklahoma that they didn't actually verify whether it was valid or not. So um, the company I was working for actually thought that I had a driver's license and I was all legal, but I wasn't. So, <clears throat> and I continued to drink through that. And I, I did a good job of being, I guess, what people would consider a functioning alcoholic. Sure. Um, I was able to get up, go to work. Um, my day pretty much was was early in the morning and I would get finished in the afternoon, especially during the summertime when it become hot because a lot of the construction would not be going on and uh, start drinking. And then a lot of the contractors that I was doing work for that would be invited to their house or their, their uh, you know, go out to eat with them and, and we would be drinking alcohol. Um, in 2009, um, in the early part of the year, my father came out to visit me and, and he was a big, we're big motorcycle enthusiasts and we love um, you know, all of the things outdoors. And he actually uh, was married at the time. And, and um, his wife um, had a fall and that come to find out that she was going to be dealing with another battle of cancer would have been her second round. And um, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And so he asked me to come home. So I moved back to Oklahoma. And um, he actually had a house uh, where I grew up. And then he lived in a house with her, so I kind of had this house to myself. And um, that was a recipe for disaster because my whole 
kind of thought process is I'm here to take care of my dad. My dad's going to in turn take care of me. And so I can drink and kind of do what I want as long as I'm here to support what he's doing. So you didn't have to have a job. I really didn't. No. Okay. And, you know, parents. Which to an alcoholic is like, whoa. Uh, it's I a dream come true. I don't even it's, have to show that I'm sober. Yeah. It's really a dream come true, you know. And so I've traditionally been, um, I've, I've always had a job. Um, while I didn't do a very good job at it, probably most of the time, you know, prior to 2016. Or you could have done better had you been sober. I Absolutely. Mean, that's, that's another way of looking at it. It is. Yeah, it is. You it's, got that, by. Yeah, I did. Um, and I certainly could have done done much more. And that was kind of the, the driving force was um, I can get a job. I can live in this house. My bills are paid. Um, and, I'll be, you know, and, and from, a, from a therapeutic standpoint and kind of what we talk about in our family support group, is that this is the very classic definition of enabling. And and parents and family members sometimes get confused on what enabling really is and, and how that impacts an individual. By no stretch of the imagination am I blaming anything that I've done um, on anyone else other than me. These are choices that I made and things that I did. But my father and, and my mother, I'm an only child, and they really wanted to make sure that I had you know the things that, that I needed to succeed. But what I didn't have was something that was inside of me, and, and, and I was looking for that uh, for a long time. So I started my alcoholism from 2018, or excuse me, 2000, around two, 1998, excuse me, and I went on until about 2016 um, from start to finish. And so while I was there in Oklahoma and I was, you know, working, I was getting fired from, from job after job. You know, my alcoholism, my behavior, and I had some really decent gigs. Um, and, and I really was just lost. And so um, I got, I had a period of time there in North Carolina where I did not get any DUIs. Um, I was using my skill set of, you know, learning when and, you know, but I never did the deal where, there, you know, Uber wasn't a thing and, 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 you know, calling somebody to come get you, that really wasn't on my right. mind. I would just um, try to either walk home or drink close enough to the house so that way I didn't have right. to, to do anything right. But my behaviors were still were still pretty consistent. Um, you know, that's so typical of, of alcoholics. It's not, should I quit drinking or do I have a problem? But how can I handle this? I mean, most of the places I've lived during during my drinking days, I moved to because I could walk to bars because I didn't want to get arrested for drunk driving. Absolutely. So I so I was a smart alcoholic. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, and that's the thing that you know our disease of alcoholism. It, it's constantly telling us we don't have a disease, and and we're always trying to figure out ways to manipulate and and figure out sure. ways that we can get around. Yeah. The real issues that we're experiencing. Right. And um, back in 2014, so when I came back to Oklahoma in 2009, I actually did go back and get my, my bachelor's degree um, and complete that. And that was, a, that was something that my mother had really been driving into me was, please get your degree, you know, get your, get, get your degree. So I said, but you're you know, drinking the whole time. I right? was, yeah. And, and so you're living free in your, in, in your house. Yeah. You're going to school. Right. You're drinking the whole time. Yeah. But you complete your degree. Right. You must be a smart drunk. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, that's, not, that's not really how I see it. Um, but, you know, there's all these things that when you're in the middle of your alcoholism that you tell yourself as to why this is okay. You know, I'm taking care of my dad. I'm going back to school. And, and okay, I'm drinking, but I'm also taking care of my dad and, and going back to school. Right. So, uh, so it's which, okay. Which, yeah, so it's all right. So it's yeah. just justification for, yeah. you know, being, being an idiot, really. 
But ultimately, um, once I graduated, I, I started working and I was getting fired and this behavior was, was, was continuing to go and continuing to go and I got a DUI. And then it's really crazy because, you know, I'm a, I, I believe in, in the Lord and I think he works in mysterious ways, but he, he, I ran into a lawyer down there in Tulsa and they called him the DUI guy. And I tell you what, this guy was sharp as a tack. He, he knew all of the technical components about how uh, and when and what, when these DAs are supposed to file this stuff. And, and that is really when I got in 2000 and somewhere in 2011, I got my fourth DUI, and then I got seven more DUIs from 2000 and, and from 2011 up until 2016. And I was able to do these in different counties, and he was representing me, and he was able to, to get me out of, of a lot of the trouble that I was in where I didn't have to go to prison or I didn't have to go to jail. He was a damn good lawyer. Oh man, because you were a damn bad I was. Drunk driver. Uh, oh yeah, all you the know. time, right? I mean, speeding and and obviously when you don't have a driver's license and you're getting these DUIs, there's all this other stuff, right? Yeah, so right. no yeah. insurance yeah. and driving under suspension and yeah. and you know all this stuff. So it's just the list of 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 the record was just really climbing. Um, but ultimately, uh, in 2016, the the county of McIntosh, which is a really, really small county in the state of Oklahoma, decided that they, they had had enough. And they said, you know, we're gonna, um, we're gonna take into everything in consideration, even though some of this stuff has been expunged, some of it, you know, has not been in a corner of record, some of it, you know, has on, is on your record. We're gonna, you know, set an example, and we're gonna let you know that this is not, this is not okay. And so um, the district attorney there came at me and said he wanted me to do nine years in and two years out. Whoa. And so I, at this time, of course, you know, my family, um, they did not want to, to throw any more money at a lost cause, and you can't blame them for that. And they really didn't know what to do with me, and the best course of action was to just let me deal with it on my own. And, and now I know that that was probably the best decisions and everybody's done for me. Sure. And so I was in jail for about 45 days or so, and then my mom bailed me out before Christmas, and... Um, I was started immediately back to drinking again, but I knew that this was the end of the road and I realized that something's going to have to change. And if I don't change it, then they're going to change it for me. I ended up going to, um, visit an attorney. That attorney, um, was a public defender. She represented me. I, and the first thing she told me was you got to get into treatment. You know, you have all these different, um, you're, you're on probation in all these counties and all this stuff is going to come to a head. And so ultimately, I went to the Salvation Army. I was there for six months, and she kept delaying my sentence and delaying my sentence. And then once I left the Salvation Army, I went to a place called the Wings of Freedom, which is a sober living environment. And between that six months in the Salvation Army and the 12 months I spent in the sober living at the Wings of Freedom, those two places really saved my life. And I went back to school um, while I was in while I was in rehab. I hadn't paid taxes in like seven years. I, I owed a kajillion dollars on my student loans and they hadn't had any, any addressing that issue. Um, I was a three-time convicted felon and, and I really just had nothing to lose and I really had no idea. And the judge and, and the, my lawyer was continuing to tell me that you're gonna do nine years and there's nothing you can do to get out of this. So I just went on my way and I just went on a, a path of trying to fix this. And 
somewhere along that I found out that I really wanted to, to work in this field and so I graduated from that six-month rehab and the very same week I started a master's degree in um, professional counseling with Grand Canyon University which is an online school right I began that I ended up um, meeting my wife uh, reconnecting with my wife through um, Facebook um, and I spoke to my probation officer I ended up getting nine years on paper and two years of supervised probation and it was really just kind of um, doing doing the next next the next best thing and doing the next right thing and allowing the the universe and all the things around you to, to kind of to kind of help me you know along the way and what ended up happening was is that um, she came to Oklahoma we reconnected I came out here in 2018 into Utah and we got married in 2019 and there's a lot of things that happen along the way you know and there was a lot of people that helped me get to get to that point um, but when I came out to Utah the only person I knew was Kristen and, and my stepson Logan and um, I tried to get a job and, and I really you know went through 11 different interviews and was denied 11 times because of background because checks. of background checks sure. and then um, once I got um, an opportunity um, Salt Lake Behavioral Health and and those guys gave me a chance and and I'm forever grateful for that and um, I ended up graduating with my master's degree to be a licensed therapist in 2020 um, the state of Oklahoma let me come out here and uh, I got off that probation and paid all my fines in the same year in 2020 wow. um, I also began to intern at the Odyssey House in 2019 as a licensed therapist and um, I met uh, Callie, our boss, um, while working over at Salt Lake, and she's, she's helped me um, get an internship here, and then she asked me to come work in this department. And then, you know, things really, um, after 2018, when I come out here, it was a struggle. Um, the state of Utah, they really, the Department of Occupational Professional Licensing, the Health and, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, they all wanted to know why some hick from Oklahoma who has a, a history of Horrible felonies record, yeah. and, you know, are wanting to work out here. So, so what do you have to go through? Because I heard you describe that. Yeah. So ultimately, um, when you go through and you want to work in this field, you have to be cleared through vulnerable backgrounds. And that's dealing with elder adults and children primarily. And you, you send an application in to the Department of Health and Human Services, and they run an FBI, FCI, some kind of, kind of background check. And then they can come back and basically say, look, um, we don't want to approve your background uh, based on your history and the, and the competitive nature. And then you can file an appeal, which I did. Um, and then they came back and said, we want you to write a narrative for everything that's on your, your FBI or Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation report. Yeah, so mine had, look. <laughs> yeah, I had 11 entries on there, yeah. and uh, I had to write a pretty good narrative. And then um, I submitted that information, and they denied me a second time. And so the third time, I was able to go in front of them, um, and they were able to see me. But the, the thing that really I, I tell all of our clients this is that while they really wanted to, to kind of take a look at, at who I was as a person, they really wanted to see what I had done since I had these incidences. And so I had a lot of documentation um, of, you know, being client of the week or, you know, graduating this program, going to school, this letter of recommendation. And I had this other group of, of papers that, that could, you know, help understand, you know, what I had done since, since the time that I was, you know, involved with alcohol and drinking and driving all the time. So 
that really did help. And then once I got ready to get a license to practice as a therapist, the Department of Occupational Professional Licensing did not want to let me do that. And so I had to go through a year of supervised probation where I had to do drug testing again. I had to check in every month. And it was very much a reminder of what I thought that I had kind of gotten over with previously. And I had to kind of relive those same thoughts and feelings again. But at the end of the day, um, the help and the support that I received from the Odyssey House and from the recovery community in the state of Utah, they really um, provided me an avenue of, of continuing on and working in this field and being a part of this organization and, and being able to work with things like, you know, people like you and, and with all of the programs that we have, it's a reminder of kind of what hard work can, can get you. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because a lot of times when we're in our addiction, we don't understand why and we don't understand how. And, and to this day, there were pieces of me that were missing, but once I come out here, I couldn't really identify what those pieces were, but I could tell you that I have a wife and that was something that I hadn't had. I have a family and that, that I'm responsible for, and that was something that I hadn't had. And, and I've had to make choices and decisions and live with those consequences on my own. And that was something that I didn't have. And these are all key components to my story as to why I've been able to, to get to this point. But it's been a lot of help well, and, and it's been and, a lot of ups and downs. And what impressed me is why I wanted you on the podcast it, and I can relate because I'm a recovering alcoholic too. And, and people in addiction tend to blame other people for what happens to them. And you had so many roadblocks along the way to get where you are right now that it would have been easy to say, screw it. I'm going to start drinking again. I'm going to give up. I'm just going to. And, and that's why you're such a good example to our clients because they're all tempted to do that at some point in their recovery. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it is um, a difficult road, um, especially whenever you're having to start life over. Um, and it does. Yeah, why do you it, keep bringing that up? That's in my past. Now I'm a good guy. Right. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that's the thing that people are are really. Um, it's just human nature. People look at history and, and, and they can see patterns. And a lot of times we don't want to face that history because that reminds us of, of, of poor choices. And the easy thing to do, obviously, is to blame someone else for things that we're doing and we're responsible for. But I really do believe that if you, um, if you make the decision and you're able to do whatever it takes, and I mean that literally, if you're willing to do whatever it takes, um, then, then you have a real fighting chance to beat the addiction disease. I know that there's different drugs and different things, and it's different for everybody. But for me, I had a long history, and kind of like you, right? We had a long history of doing these same things, and this was kind of our life. And I just no longer really wanted that life anymore. And I didn't really know in 2016 when I was sitting in the jail cell what this was going to look like, you know, seven years later. Um, but it was the persistency of trying to do the next right thing and trying to to figure out ways to not go back down that road. And I know that for me personally, that alcohol um, is really something that is, um, it's detrimental to my health. Me too. And I just don't, I just don't do it anymore. You are a wonderful example. Thank you for being on our podcast. I hope people dealing with addiction become inspired by your story. I appreciate you, the opportunity to be here. You were a bad dude and now you're a good dude, right? <laughs> I, I try my best. Okay. So. Thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.